Hello and welcome back to The Front Lounge, episode something or other. This is brought to you by Laphroaig 18, the first whiskey to get us into PD Whiskey. Obviously, we're not actually sponsored by them, but we just wanted to give a quick shout out and you'll see it's quite relevant. Welcome to episode 48 of The Front Lounge with Congos. We are Congos, and today we have a very special guest, Pedro Shanahan, who is the spirit guide at the 213 Hospitality Group, which is a collection of bars and uh, tasting societies here in Los Angeles. Uh, welcome. Great to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So the first thing I guess we were talking about is spirit guides, kind of a dual meaning, <laughs> a dual meaning title. And it shouldn't be taken too intensely. I don't want to be too responsible here you know i'm <laughs> trying to adult as little as possible most of the time but it was a bit tongue-in-cheek the title in that uh i was teaching i teach yoga and as we were opening these bars in downtown los angeles i was teaching bartenders about spirits and hospitality and so the joke was that i can heal you from the yoga with the whiskey or i can heal you from the whiskey with the yoga whatever you need this morning and so i'm you- just coming from class right now i'm i'm quite sweaty but you guys two are in a van you probably are not not too not alien to the sweat, idea of, no. yeah it's the yin and the yang, right? Yeah, the stinky van life. <laughs> I feel like we've got a very, there's a lot of crossover because Dylan's always doing yoga in our fucking dressing rooms, stinking the place up, and we've always got a bottle of whiskey in the dressing room, so yeah. I feel like there's a mix mash there. Well, I mean, Lefroy kind of smells like sweat to begin with, so. <laughs> Wow. Um, well, if you drink enough of it, your sweat will smell like Lefroy. Yeah. Oh, I, that's happened. <laughs> I don't think it was as nice as Lefroy, though. It was probably Jameson or something like that, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, when you do have enough of something, like we're big Indian food people, so you have a big Indian meal, and the next day you go for a run, you you know, cumin's coming out. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like it's a funny mingling. Yoga and whiskey is kind of describes L.A. in a way, because people's, I think, outside of L.A.'s impression of L.A. is probably just the yoga part of that. Like, they wouldn't imagine that there's also the normal, like, people that drink whiskey and eat food, you know, they just imagine everyone just goes on fumes and like good vibes out here. It's a work hard, play hard town for sure. Yeah. I feel like I've seen that on t-shirt yoga and whiskey or something like that. If not, we should put it out exclusive for the (laughs) podcast listeners. Why don't you, why don't you, you know, to introduce our listeners to your, what you do, you want to just give us like a rundown of what your job entails. Cause we've had, um, you know, people in that world on this podcast before, but I'm sure your, your side is a little bit different. Or maybe right. even more, a little more background about who, you know, where you're from, when you moved out to LA, that, and how you got into this. Sure. I've been in LA for 20 years. I'm an actor and a musician. I came here to you know, pursue these creative arts. And uh, of course, that also means you have to hold down a day job most of the time. Uh, and so to add interest to my you know, day job in the bar world. I just went really deep with self-education in terms of the spirits that we were drinking. I helped open um, Seven Grand Whiskey Bar in downtown LA 12 years ago at a time when downtown was really dead. It was like part of Skid Row. And slowly we were like an anchor property that showed people that it's not impossible that you can attract people to this little area. We were the only bar open on our entire block the only business open after 6 p.m. when we first opened. Uh, and that experience of like kind of helping the downtown revitalization happen was, was very informative. And 
I was training employees along the way and self-educating on spirits. My job now, uh, 12 years later, is I curate the Whiskey Society at Seven Grand on Mondays, the Rum Society at Kanye Rum Bar over on Olympic and Flower on Tuesdays, which is what I did last night. Then I got up and taught yoga this morning. And then, <laughs> and then uh, the Mezcal Collective at Las Perlas, which is our Mezcal bar on 6th and Main, which is tonight. So if you guys want to come join the Mezcal Collective, you're on me. I've been, yeah, I've been there once. Um, I don't know if it was a Wednesday, but I've been to Las Perlas. That's yeah. a, I, we, so we first, I guess, crossed paths, even though I don't think we had met. Uh, we had a friend who was, had a bottle at the Jackalope room or yeah the bar, bar jackalope which is in the back of seven grand and we were kind of instantly hooked on the idea because i think what was cool about bar jackalope i mean about seven grand whole but is it really is about whiskey and we've, we've i've said this before on the podcast there's, there's nothing pretentious about it it's not like some private society where it's about how much money you want to spend on whiskey it really is for people that are interested in whiskey and want to enjoy whiskey, and that's kind of the extent of it. And that's what's nice about it is that it's a fairly honest experience for what could be turned into something douchey and like very like unnecessarily exclusive. Well, it's funny because in, in LA, some people really want that, and we're constantly up against this battle at the door where people, oh, is this the VIP club? Um, no, yeah. it's not. And uh, oh, is this the exclusive secret bar? <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, so yeah. how do I how do I get in here? You just come in. You know, it's like <laughs> people want it to be a little bit yeah. to be something that it's not. And we we're trying to be like an institution of of spirits education, but really we're modeled after what they call in Japan a shot bar, which is not a place to actually do shots like we do in America, which is a, a quick slug of of liquor, but rather a place where you can buy a bottle and it's very intimate. These these bustling shop bars in, in Tokyo, they might only have eight seats, but once those eight seats are filled, then no one else can come in. And they, they practice in Japan what they call omotenashi. And that's the Japanese translation would be that it's a hospitality, but it really it, it's a very high level of hospitality. Mm. They they have a saying as Ichigo Ichie, which means this one time, meaning that we may never get to share this moment again. And for it to truly be real, we both have to be present. We have to be respectful of this one time. And that's mm. what we try to engender within the Bar Jackalope is that really intimate vibes. Parties of four or less. And anyone can come in there. And it's a real library. We've got books. We've got grains. We've got a pot still. We've got all these ways you can educate yourself on whiskey. But also, it's just going to be quiet. Like, Seven Grand's this raging whiskey bar where it's super fun to party. We like to say this, like, uh, we'll give you a, a night that you won't be able to remember at Seven Grand. <laughs> and Bar Jacob, we want it to be the opposite, the night that you'll never forget. A, a real time of connection where you can kind of put your phone aside and get eye contact with the person that you're hanging out with and really just sink into the moment. And whiskey has a, a great way of uh, enabling yeah. that. I think it's quite a trip going from bar Jekyll when you've been in there for a number of hours and then coming out into seven grand if you haven't left because it's like you're it's like it's a bit like going from your house onto hollywood boulevard you know you're <laughs> you're entering into the fray yeah. when you when you just got used to this kind of subdued introspective room you know where they got thousands of bottles of whiskey that you're so there's there's not it's not a secret entrance but is there a secret exit <laughs> <laughs> not unless you can like climb down the side of a building uh, we, we do have a cigar patio so potentially yeah. you could you know a spider-man your way out of there but uh, i wouldn't recommend yeah. it especially after drinking whiskey <laughs> i can just picture that you know you you spend all night kind of 
getting into the zone and, and, and experiencing the vibe and really tasting the whiskey. And, you know, you have to kind of keep tunnel vision on your way out so that you don't get pulled into the mess and then lose your, lose your moment, you know? Yeah, that's <laughs> the story of my life right there. <laughs> one, of the, one of the books I liked in Bar Jackalope was the smelling book. What's mm. that book? Uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's called uh, La Nez du Whiskey, which mm-hmm. means the nose of whiskey. Uh, it's by um, it, Jean-Luc Lemoyne. And it's an actual, uh, it's synthetic distillates and tiny little smell bottles. That It's a palate education uh, right. kit, essentially. It's got a flavor wheel in it, and it's fun. It's got little numbers on the bottles, so you can do kind of blind tastings with whoever. I mean, not tastings, you don't taste it, but you can smell these little smell jars and try to guess what you think it is. And they're synthetic isolates, so they can be a little bit different. Like the way we actually sense smells and tastes are within an environment. And sometimes when you have an isolate, it's like, I don't know what that is because yeah. it's so separate from the rest of the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's... But then the tricky. minute it's the minute you look at the label, you're like, oh, of course. Like there was one yeah. in there, I think it's ru- tire rubber or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't place it. But then the minute I saw the thing, I'm like, of course that's tire rubber. But it's so crazy how specific and how accurate some of those smells are. And they're, they're not, they're not um, like broad smells. It's not like flowers or grass. It's like a very specific – some of them are so specific that yeah. it's, it's really interesting. Well, I think the blind aspect of it is really important, you know, because I- – Every, every world where there's, you're trying to make a distinction or make a choice you know, or A, B something, it's very easy for your mind to kind of fool you into which one you prefer or which one you know, you're going to lean towards. And we, the, in music, we use the same technique. And I'm sure if you're a musician, you, you know as well. If you're doing some recording, especially if you're adjusting something on the gear or, or adjusting something on the recording, you can sit there and think you're making a change and like, oh, yeah, this is definitely better. And then five minutes later you realize, oh, it's not even turned on. You know, it was bypassed and whatever I was adjusting was doing nothing, but your mind has convinced you. So the importance of a blind test is is really good, I think, in, in every aspect of life. What do, they, what do they call it? They have the label knob. Like on the desk, like producers would just have a knob or a fader that literally does nothing so that the guy from the label could feel like he was doing something. Because <laughs> you push something, you're like, oh, yeah, that works. Well, the, other th- the other thing was the guitar fader, you know, the, the phantom guitar fader where the guitar player wants to be turned up, you give him a fader that does nothing and he can push himself up, you know, and get the satisfaction. <laughs> but the, you don't have to ruin your mix. The beauty of synesthesia. <laughs> your brain so what, fills in the gaps for you. When you said you were self-educated on the whiskey side, like what made you want to get into that? What made you, and what were the first steps to kind of educating yourself on spirits and um, well, I'm self-educated now. in that I never went to school. Of course, we've got people coming through, like Dale DeGroff came and did a workshop, and Stephen Beale came and did workshop. These big, like, kind of superheroes of the the bar industry, and in a time where cocktail bars were just starting to make a comeback twelve years ago, in especially in Los Angeles, um, we did have people coming in and doing workshops and seminars with our employees, and I would educate myself through that. But initially, when we opened the bar. I had been doing bar managing and stuff in Hollywood here, but when we went downtown, I I just wanted to focus on kind of the ergonomics of the bar and the setup of the bar. I was like, I'll I'll do the bar 
back work. I can help out with the ordering. And one of the charges was we got to figure out this whiskey wall. We want to buy 800 whiskeys. Someone's got to figure out what to buy. So that was my charge. And initially, I would be taking in the orders as a bar back during the day and unboxing all these bottles and just reading the pamphlets that come in the boxes and reading the backs of the bottles and the backs of the boxes. And that's what I mean by self-educating is that there's no university of whiskey. We kind of had to do it ourselves. You know, there's to this day, there might be some kind of sommelier accreditation that's starting to happen for the spirits. I don't believe in that stuff so much. And most of your ability to smell and taste comes from your own imagination anyway. And that can't be taught. That comes from your own personal experience. So, I, I mean, we have our own podcast as well, the Spirit Guide Society podcast. So we record all of our tasting events. I do three a week. And that's a place for people to kind of get better in touch with their own senses. You know, we only have so many ways to understand this universe. Smell and taste are two of them that are not hardwired into your brain, like your ability to touch things and to hear and to see. Those are all, they have their own areas of your cerebrum, but... Uh, smell and taste goes through your hippocampus, which means you have to use your memory. So every smell that you've ever smelled has been kind of cataloged in your hippocampus from the time you were born. And that's where your ability to smell and taste comes from. It's from this like data bank that your brain has compiled every moment that you've been awake and alive. And so we try to turn people on to a deeper sense of that because we think that's a gift that keeps on giving. The, if you can have a deeper a sense of your own senses that makes your life richer and your experience here in this time more rich, you know? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I've heard that before that the part of the brain that deals with olfactory stuff is very close to your memory center. So that makes sense. Uh, it's, uh, is there, it's is just anecdotally, to, it's smell is the most memory instant, associated. Right, sense, you, know, you smell something, get, yeah. you immediately are transported. And there's a yeah. biological imperative to that. Think about like hunters and gatherers. Like if a, a female Homo sapien was out in the dark woods at night, and there's a predator sniffing around, she would have to not only be able to smell the predator in the darkness, but also smell the location of her baby in order to get to it and protect it from that predator. Mm -hmm. And that's like that's some deep deep biological imperative that's based all in smell, you know? Yeah. It's all been leading to whiskey. One thing I've noticed <laughs> is that there is, there does seem to be a physical component to smell brought on by sickness. If you're sick, you're much more sensitive to smells, I've, at least for myself. If I'm, mm. you know, if, if I'm sick and you, I haven't eaten mm -hmm. for a day or two, then you realize what your smell is capable of. It's, you can distinguish so many things from so far away that you were just oblivious to before. I always thought maybe you can train that so you don't need to be you know, sick to, to induce that kind of sensitivity. Yeah, well, it is a muscle like anything else. If you practice smelling things, you'll get really good at it. I've found that in my 12 years of like really focusing on my ability to smell, I walk down the street, I can smell things like way further away than most people can. And, and just... I can tell when someone's kind of stressed out because the way they they smell. Like, mm. it's weird. If you really focus on it, it's an expansive sense. We just ignore it a lot of the time. Right. Our dad's always had a very strong sense of smell. And I, I can imagine there would be too much of a sense of smell because he's very... Like, if we want to know if, if milk's gone off, like, I'll drink the milk. I can't taste anything. He smells and he's like, oh, this is, you know marginally off by like by four and a half minutes and it would get to a point where i would imagine it would be kind of annoying to have that uh, acute of a sense of smell just as i feel like it would apply to certain other things 
if like you're a mastering engineer who can't switch that part of your brain off where you can only listen to music in that way in a critical or, way yeah, yeah and, uh, it's obviously useful and incredible but the there's an evolutionary basis for taste as well right for I, there was just an article last year or two years ago where they finally proved that so far I think they've distinguished 23 bacteria that your taste buds can distinguish between mm-hmm. purely as a threat that you can taste these threats oh you know? for sure so this so there's a biological imperative to that. So like when you're in grade school, they tell you that your tongue map consists of there's like sweet in the front of your tongue, bitter in the back of your tongue, sour in the middle, mm-hmm. and then salty on the sides. And then there's what we call umami, your ability to detect proteins in, in, a, in a substance. And that's kind of all over. It's a texture thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you can tell the difference between veggie broth and beef broth, for instance. Even with your nose plugged, you'll be able to tell which one has that right. animal fat in it, Mm. you know? Um, But again, that's a biological imperative because like if you're a hunter-gatherer and you pick a piece of fruit, well, one of the things that makes human beings unique is our ability to adapt. We've figured out over millions of years like what was safe to eat and what wasn't and that's that regurgitative reflex. A lot of animals don't have the ability to puke when they eat poison. Human beings do, but we would taste something with the front of our tongue and if it's sweet, it'd be like, okay, that's probably safe to eat because energy comes from sugars. If it's poisonous, a lot of poisonous things are translated as our brain as being bitter. The bitter taste buds, well, you'll probably have a lot of them on the back of your tongue. That can cause you to have that regurgitative reflex, which right. again, you need that if you're eating poison. You need to get that out of your body. So your body's adapted these senses as a way to survive, obviously, but we can also in modern times, be a little more relaxed and then use them as a, a right, way to yeah. expand our pleasure. I think there's a Chinese saying, which is eat the bitter, which I think they use bitter as a as a gallbladder stimulant, you know, to in, induce bile release and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Makes, uh, yeah, different animals have got different cats, you know, they can distinguish far more proteins than we can. They can distinguish individual amino acids, I believe. Wow. Um, so yeah, it makes sense we would evolve to taste the things we we need a taste. <laughs> Uh, the very little fasting that I've done when I've done like not eating for a day or two and then my smell becomes incredibly, incredibly strong. I don't know if it's because like, you're, you're, hungry, you're hungry and you're just like, oh, that smells good, that smells good, that smells good. But there's it must also have some biological you know history to it or uh, evolutionary. Yeah, you need food so your yeah, body you starts need, ramping you're trying up. looking for it everywhere. Yeah, exactly. You need to find it. Yeah, you know, yeah, for but sure. I mean, you know pregnant, you, uh, pregnancy is the is the biggest example of that I've ever encountered. You know, when Rachel was pregnant with Eve, she went through a period where I could I couldn't even have curry spices in the house. I had bought all these nice like curry spices to grind myself and make. You know, and normally she loves Indian food and I love it. It's literally my favorite food. Um, but it got to a point where, it, for whatever reason, during that po- portion of her pregnancy, it put her off. I tripled bag them. I've put it inside three Ziploc bags inside another bag. I hid it up in the cupboard and she could still smell it. Wow. And it was just, in, you know, it was intense. And at the same time, if it was something she really wanted, you know, like if she went through a donut craving, like down the street, she could smell it. It's like radar. Just you had to start <laughs> yeah. sneaking out of the house to eat curry. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, and then I have to stay gone, you know, so that she can smell it on me. <laughs> Where have you been? <laughs> yeah. Honey, how was that? Tandoori Palace. <laughs> when you were doing some of your fasting recently, did you find it obviously affected what you were craving? Did you find like it was almost like a reset of what you were craving? Because, you know, you can, particularly on tour, I feel like you just like bombard your senses with so much that you become 
uh, insensitive to smells and everything smells good. But when you when I've done micro little thoughts, you do find yourself kind of more gravitating towards I think things that are broadly speaking healthier. Yeah, you. Uh, well, and I got over it really quickly. Like, <laughs> but initially, you want to you know satisfy yourself with whole foods and like uh, complete uh, grains and things like that. That that's what sounds and smells and uh, feels healthy and satisfying. But then quickly you're kind of go back to your associations and you're like, I'll oh, just have, Cheetos. yeah, I'll have this and I'll have that. I'll have this and that, and then I'll eat everything. I did. I did a kind of Lent. I mean, I'm not religious, but I did the Lent thing just to reset whatever uh, your impression of food should be is. And one of the rules of it, I think in Russian or Greek Orthodox is to cut out oil for most of the week for, you know, for the week and then weekends you eat oil, which is a real fucking rager. Um, <laughs> But it does you it like rice and soy sauce was three weeks in tasted better than any meal I've ever had. It was <laughs> the best but chef I mean, in the that's world. One of the best couldn't meals compete to begin with. with. Yeah, it couldn't. They couldn't compete with the a very very basic combination because it, your state that you taste something in is more well, important than the thing. So it's the sort of re, the reset of your senses and the de, almost the desensitization that occurs when you stimulate them over time a lot, you know, and I, maybe you could talk about how, how that plays into a tasting, for instance, you know, and the different ways that you can cleanse your palate or reset so that you're not too influenced by what you previously had. Well, one way to reset your palate, I think, is to smell your own skin. Because it's ultimately a really familiar smell. Like so, like when I'm doing a bunch of side by side comparative smells or tastes, I'll just kind of reset on my own body odor, you know, and just kind of be like, oh, that's that's what that smells like, you know. Or if you have a whiskey that's like absolutely super familiar for me, like I'll be sipping through a bunch of whiskeys, and if I start to feel like my palate's getting kind of skewed, I'll smell some Maker's Mark because I know what Maker's Mark smells like. And it's like, oh, okay, okay, that's what that... Yes, my nose is now off because now this Maker's doesn't smell like the normal Maker's. That means it's something... Get a little closer. Oh, yeah. Get a little closer. (laughs) (laughs) Come with me now. (laughs) There's the radio voice there. (laughs) So I I don't like the smell of Maker's. (laughs) So it's weeded bourbon. You guys are um, So basically the... Using something extremely familiar mm-hmm. to re- okay, that's and if that smells off, then you know that you need to take a step back, drink some water, kind of take a time out, and then go back to it because sometimes your brain just again it's that synesthesia where your brain starts to fill in the gaps yeah. sometimes in inaccurate ways, yeah, and you need to just call time out on yourself and, and get into it. But that's what's fun about doing these societies is it it's it's in a public this, our podcast is recorded live in front of an audience and so yeah. it's fun to hear other people's feedback because it shows you where your blind spots are to have that public forum in which people are throwing out these food words and you're like oh my goodness i never would have thought of that because like you know we live in LA it's a very cosmopolitan environment and if if i'm like oh I smell smoked herring and miso soup. Well, that might be very different from someone who maybe never grew up with that in their diet. You know, mm. like if you go to Scotland and you start talking about like, oh, this smells like s'mores. Well, maybe they've never had s'mores because that's a pretty uniquely American kind of thing. Graham crackers and marshmallow and chocolate over a fire, you know. Yeah. yeah. So it's all comes again from your own experience. So it's fun to discover your blind spots. It's fun to find out what things come easy and are very familiar familiar to you, but then also be inspired by someone else's experience and be like, "Wow, 
that is way beyond where I would have normally gone to. You know, yeah, the Scottish so descriptions it, on bottles are like smoky peat, sea kelp, and fighting, <laughs> like, and, and, deep, a, and a swift punch to the face. Deep fried of Dylan, were you, was it you who, who was earlier talking about what you know? What gives something notes in like in wine oh. or weed or you know? Oh yeah, I started getting it because I was. I've always been a little skeptical of the descriptions on wines and whiskeys of certain notes and fragrances and stuff, but um, I know that they're at the very highest level of sommeliers and, and uh, connoisseurs that there is amazing accuracy on what those notes are, where it was grown, how it was grown, what year, all that stuff. But I recently started um, growing some small amounts of cannabis and the, just reading and getting interested in the curing process of it and just reading about how like certain plants share terpenes. Like mm-hmm. there's a, a terpene is a, a like a volatile uh, fat or um, um, amino acid that breaks down or evaporates at different um, temperatures. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm probably fucking up the science of it, but that there are similarities between um, different plants. So that like there is a specific terpene that cannabis shares with like mango and certain citrus and things like that. And it evaporates at different um, temperatures. So the, way you cure it and how you cure it, cure it for how long will bring out those notes in weed or it'll bring it out in, um, in whatever you might be curing, aged you know, wine in the type of wood that you're um, aging it in. And, and I'm sure it's similar to whiskey in terms of like what barrels they use and, and all that. Oh, for sure. There's a, it's a massive confluence of, of different influences, you know, these, these different elements that go together over time to create these different flavor profiles. It can be the source grain. I mean, whiskey is, is whiskey because it aligns itself with the base agricultural ingredient that it's made from. In this case, you guys have a bunch of bottles of scotch on your table. That's all malted barley. If it's a single malt scotch, that means there's only one ingredient in that bottle, and that's a varietal of malted barley, you know, usually just one kind of grass. But, um, you know, you can make whiskey or you can make spirits out of anything that has sugar in it you know um so it's expansive like the different flavors and then after your base agricultural ingredient you've got whatever kind of still that you're using are you using a pot still that makes for a really oily basey distillate or using a column still that allows you to strip different fusel oils away at different varying levels where you can really control the flavor a lot with the column still and then there's the aging or the maturation so it's it's Distil- uh, fermentation, distillation, and maturation. Those are the three different aspects that all join together over time to create the, the flavor profile in whatever spirit that you're into. But that maturation, what kind of barrel is it? Is it a reused barrel? Is it a brand new barrel? Is it a charred barrel or a toasted oak barrel? Is it a, a sherry butt or a port cask? Or did it hold you know, plum wine? Or is it made out of Japanese oak? There's so many different influences that can change over time, you know? And then there's, in that maturation, there's just the chemical changes that occur. Uh, Evaporative condensation. As the water is evaporating out of the spirit, how do those molecules continue to bond? You've got these, like, long-chain tannins that are formed over time out of short-chain tannins. Like compounds like to bond. And so over time, you get these long chains of different flavors essentially and that's those turn out to be textures you know when we say that a whiskey has a nice linger well that's because there's actual long chain tannins in there it's it's not when you first taste a, a spirit straight off the still often it kind of has a, a granular or spiky mouthfeel that's because you just blew you just took the alcohol out of 
the beer essentially and you broke apart all those molecules well those broken molecules will you'll be able to detect the texture of those broken molecules it'll be kind of spiky in your mouth but then over time everything melds back to itself and that's where we get what we call a flavor that lingers and that's mm. a mature spirit does that make sense yeah, oh, yeah it does uh, this is you start with your base and then you extract something and then you add something. It's pretty. It's a pretty interesting process. Mm-hmm. Jesse, well, can we tell our story? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, you had said something about this. But there's certain scotches. Obviously, it's very subjective. But we've we've got our, our uh, list of scotches out. I on think our you're going to tell me. You're going to say what I what I was also just going to say about the Frog 18. Yeah. Yeah. Go so I think I think maybe it was probably ten years ago or something. Johnny started to bring home the occasional scotch you know and he wanted to try different stuff because we had always just drunk what our dad drank which was you know johnny walker black or shivers or something like that and then and then yeah Yeah. johnny wanted to get more serious about it so he would occasionally bring home a bottle and he brought a bottle of lefroy 10 once and we like most of us kind of gagged on it we couldn't drink it it was like nah that's not (laughs) that's not that's not my thing anyway kind of fast forward I don't know, five or six years, and we were we were on tour with Kings of Leon and Young the Giant, and uh, it was it was such like a party tour for us because we were the opening band. We had very little work, you know. Um, there was like a, we had a, we had a hospitality writer, you know. It was one of the most relaxing tours of that nature that you could do, and I think we got a bottle of Lafroy eighteen, and we we all sat we sat around with the Young the Giant guys and we tasted it, and I drank that, and I thought, oh. <laughs> now I can drink the 10 because I was introduced like that's it tasted like wisdom to me oh, yeah. you know I don't, I don't know how it sounds pretentious as fuck but to me that's what it tasted like mm-hmm. well when you and hear then, what- then gonna quote downgrading to the 10 you know I can I can taste the raw thing that I in the more refined aspect of the 18 that I tasted and I'm not a connoisseur by any means but for me the gateway <laughs> the gateway drug to Lefroy 10 was the 18 well, I resist the idea of connoisseurs. I, I say that, you know, be an enthusiastic student. Know what you like. You know, you don't have to be an expert upon all things, but it's really important to know what you like. You know, find, yeah, your, I mean, find it, your joy. I've found that it's very important to know so I don't waste money because, <laughs> I mean, I just started making a spreadsheet of whiskeys that I'd tried and giving them literally just a one through five rating, not getting too serious, just like one or five or three, you know, like would I buy this again because I was – finding myself going to bar being like, have I tried the Ardbeg, blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, some of them can be expensive and I don't want to pay $30 to taste something I've tasted before and should have remembered that I didn't like. Right. So it's just, it's like, there's a basic element. But then as you get more detail in that, it, I, it's enjoyable process, I guess, like most things in life, the more you know, as long as it doesn't become an obsession, I think, where it, where it loses what it's actually about, which is enjoying the taste of it. It's it's it only helps, but yeah, that idea. I think there is there is wisdom in it in the fact that it's taken human beings hundreds and thousands of years to arrive at the science of being able to make something that, as as you're describing, the the underlying science of which I don't really know anything about, but of these long chain tannins reforming and reconnecting, like that is wisdom like it's taken that long for human beings to understand that to make something that's this pleasing it's a it's for me it was a sort of specific sensation it wasn't just good or i didn't just like it you know and i'm projecting a lot of my own psychology into this i think but but i i like to think that in certain areas of life sometimes i have a sensitivity to the sort of order that's been placed into something you know Mm -hmm. there's an you can taste the order you can taste that it was created in that 
way for a reason mm-hmm. and that it wasn't based on anything ephemeral. It took a long time, you know, 18 years to sit in a barrel before you even take it out. Like how, how long, how many generations of people have to experiment before they arrive at some sort of consensus like, ah, yes, this is what we're trying to achieve. You know, and well, I always think of an old distiller, an old master distiller who's making a batch of whiskey that he's never going to try. You know, I like that. That's a you got to be really into it. <laughs> yeah. Well, for sure. And but there's also there is this inherent wisdom to it because someone has to decide when it's ready. And this idea of like sipping on 18 year old whiskey, 200 years ago, people weren't waiting 18 years to get into their bottle of whiskey. The only time that it spent in a barrel was the time it took from getting from the place it was made to wherever you were going to drink it. You know, like 200 years ago here on the West Coast, you'd walk into a bar. There would have been a barrel behind the bar, not a bunch of bottles. Glass was a really hot commodity back then. You would have bought a bottle wrapped in twine from your bartender because they wouldn't want to break the bottle. So you'd buy a bottle off the barrel from your bartender. If you were fancy and maybe had a little money, that bartender might make a punch bowl for you. Because they might have maybe at a really good bar a block of ice to put in there. Other than that, you were sipping off a bottle that you got pulled from a barrel. So and was it accidental, the interest in aging? Was it basically people realized, oh, if we leave this in there, it, it tastes better? Or was it, did they know from the beginning? No, we're not, we're not too smart to be able to imagine all that stuff. It just would have been like, okay, think of like uh, if you had some uh, brandy. You know, back in the day, 250 years ago, brandy would have been the thing before the Felixera outbreak in Europe, which was a, a worm that came from the New World and infected the grapevines of the Old World and decimated the cognac crops and the brandy crops. So that's when people started drinking other things. But what they would have learned is like bringing cognac from the old world to the new world. Maybe they stopped in Portugal or Spain on the way. They picked up a, a, a Madeira, a Madeira barrel to put their cognac in. And then as they were traveling over the ocean in the six months it took to get here, sloshing around in that barrel, it totally changed the flavor profile of the cognac. So it would have been just trial and error, these different things. And like, same here in America. Like if you were getting a rye whiskey that was made in Maryland, for instance, and then it ended up down in New Orleans, well, in the six months it took to get down the Mississippi River to New Orleans, that time in the barrel would change the flavor profile of the spirit. And so people were starting to get a clue that like, oh, charred oak, has this effect on a whiskey or sherried oak or a different wine cask might have those different effects. And so a lot of experimentation has led to the point now where we have these like 25-year-old expressions and 40-year-old expressions. But for me, like when talking about single malt scotch, a lot of it peaks out between 10 and 16 years to me. Like a lot of times say like that Laforig 18 that you guys love, I might actually go for the 10-year cast strength, which is a higher alcohol content It's a little more of a slap you in the face kind of whiskey, but maybe I'm not in the mood for that mellowness that comes with that extra eight years of that mellowing. To celebrate, I can't remember what, an album or leaving the label or something like that, we got got a Laphroaig 25 and it was okay. (laughs) It was the 18 was, you know, way better. The amount we paid for it, it was goddamn fucking excellent. (laughs) I refuse refuse to acknowledge anything different. It was really good on ice. It was like, it was so gentle. It was so, Mm -hmm. it was, it was, it's what you said. It was so mellow. It was so mellow that it was, it was almost like a a non-event. I get, I get that though. The, um, the, go back to the gateway effect, you know, now all, most times I would actually prefer to drink the 10, you know, because for me, the 18 is like a special experience and I don't want to 
um, make it ordinary, you know, yeah. or, you know, it's not your everyday yeah, sipper. Yeah. It's a special occasion. And that's cool. And those things are, are cool too. And what's interesting, like people are like, there's no right or wrong way to drink your whiskey. If you want to put a piece of ice on a 25 year old whiskey, I might not go for that. I, I, <laughs> that's I his like way of telling smell. you you're wrong. You do. <laughs> no, no, no. But what happens when you put spirit on ice, it kind of shuts down the nose. The smell is from the evaporation of the spirit into your nose, you know? I, yeah, I did it. I tried it on with no ice initially and I wasn't crazy about it. And then I put it on ice and it was it was nice. <laughs> well, that's oh, because... I, after also the, with a straw. Oh, my goodness. No, I'm kidding. But what happens is as the water, as the ice starts to melt, that water gets into that whiskey because what's been happening in that 25 years in the barrel is that the water's been evaporating out. Mm-hmm. So by putting a tiny bit of water back in, it unlocks all these different confluences I'm, of flavors that you would have been unaware of if you hadn't had that water. Right. So I, I've noticed it's, it's obviously less smelly when you cool it. Um, and I always do, I do a taste and then I put a bit of water in and generally I like like a little, a little drop of water in whatever I'm drinking specifically on the Laphroaig 25. I just couldn't get into it with no ice in it. And I, I don't know what, what it was, but it was very nostalgic. It's like, I, whenever I remember tasting whiskey as a kid, you know, that when I was hitting the bottle hard, (laughs) <laughs> I, that brought back that memory for me. Mm-hmm. I think that it was very associative, you know, because our dad and all the, like, there was one whiskey in South Africa and it, it was Johnny Walker. It was kind of oh. everybody was, it was what Johnny about Walker. Baines? Was, no, Johnny they Walker had a lot of whiskey. Was they like, had a lot of whiskeys, but it was not in the, the Greek selection. community, though. In the Greek community, it was Johnny Walker and, and Chivas. Chivas. Yeah, yeah that's it was, the only thing anyone drank. And this. And Retsina? Yeah, and Retsina. Yeah, Retsina's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm surprised that you've had Retsina. <laughs> I guess you were a spirit guide. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I'm gonna have to. Re- I, I've lost the thought now. That it was it was going to be an amazing point that I was going to make. And I've, <laughs> I've forgotten it. Uh, but so back to the spirit guide. Do, should, do you want to talk about the the yoga aspect of your life? How did you get into that? And well, I, how does it relate? I come from Oregon. I grew up in the Eugene Springfield area of Oregon, which is kind of like the hippie capital of the world. If you've never been up there, we got a, a lot of um, a lot of dreadlocks and and, <laughs> and Birkenstocks. And um, I mean, it's it's a different way of looking at the world. And, and wellness is very much. Uh, part of the deal a lot of folks I grew up even as a kid like playing around with yoga but coming down here you know you want to be an actor and a musician if you're going to have a career and those kind of you got to take care of your instrument you're essentially if you're a, an actor your, your body is your instrument so you need to be like taking care of it and when I got into you know the role of trying to train other bartenders and stuff that came comes into it too the bartending specifically is a very kind of dangerous business they have a, a lot of tendency towards substance abuse uh, alcohol abuse, depression, all those things. You know, when you're trying to give hospitality to people and you're up late at night, there's a lot of ups and downs to that world. So I try to encourage people to like, whatever makes you feel more healthy and is is getting you to a better place physically, you need to be doing it. If you're going to work in the bar industry, especially, or like you guys out on tour, you know, you got to moderate at all times. You can't just be raging hard every single night. It's going to detract from your ability to put on a good show. So you have to have elements of wellness within to create that balance within Mm -hmm. your ability to be a successful artist, you know? Yeah, this last tour of ours, I mean, rock and roll is dead. 
it was we'd go into like our day room sometimes there'd be four people just doing yoga in every corner of the room and gone were the days of the even heavy the drinking cr- you know the it's, crew it's, guys it's, started doing yoga even is it, it i mean it's fun but it's changed like the first of all when you see those legendary bands from the 70s and 80s they didn't tour as much as bands tour now yeah you know like they could they could make money from selling records and it was mm-hmm. a totally different world. Plus, I mean, they was they were just different people, like the Led Zeppelins of the world. But it's so common now when we're out with bands like around our age and our era to uh, use that word, which makes it sound more important than it is. But it's changed. It's a lot more like health conscious people out on the road because it's just you can't live that life. But yeah, being long. on the road is so tough. You guys, you you play your show that may might be after 10 hours of driving mm. two to four hours of setup then that's you're already 14 hours into your day and they're like now jump up and be the life of the party guys <laughs> so you're beginning then you play like an hour or two set that means after that that's you've been up for 16 hours you traveled over 500 miles you know it's like that is not easy people like to glamorize that that sounds like a really crappy job you know like <laughs> No, I mean, I, I mean, um, you guys enjoy the, that. No, yeah, it's the interaction that happens with the live audience. Of course, is like what yeah, we're yeah. all in it for, and I, I totally get behind that. But it's not easy, you know. No, we yeah, did, we, we did do the van. We for years we toured in a van, and that was very hard to stay in shape and healthy because you're sitting, you know, in a chair. Yeah. For sometimes, like you said, eight hours, and then you get to the show, and then you got to drive some more after the show, and uh, it's it's not a glamorous, it's not a fun, it's not that part of it is not fun. Obviously, the camaraderie and the experiences are all fun, but when we move to a bus and you're sleeping on a bunk bed at night, you know that has its own challenges because you never actually get full rest if the bus is moving most of the night. Right. Um, but uh, we had a crew, yo- a crew member we called he. We had came up with a term as like Pringle, uh, Pringle bloat or something like that. <laughs> Basically, you know, you're on the road for that long. You're stopping at gas stations, especially when you're van touring. You're just eating whatever the fuck it is, and it's all just really, really high sodium content. So, just by the end of the tour, you just look like like a Pringle box. You yeah. just you've eaten so many Pringles, it just <laughs> the yeah. skin took on the consistency of salt and vinegar Pringles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, what did, did you uh, did you study yoga in Oregon then or here? Well, I was introduced to it as a kid up in Oregon for mm-hmm. sure, but I, I studied here at Earth's Power Yoga, which is one of the oldest yoga studios in Los Angeles, just right down on Melrose and Fairfax. Mm-hmm. And uh, initially, Did that changed our yoga works. No, no, it's, no, it's still not, there. Okay. Earth's Power Yoga, and the guy Earth, Stephen Earth, who runs the place and is the owner, he's a, he used to play with this killer punk rock band from here in LA called Mad Season. Mad Season, Mad Society? Mad Society, I can't remember. It's, it's one of those two. They're old school punk band, but like I knew him through mutual friends. He lived across the street from me when I first moved into the Fairfax neighborhood here in LA. And he was cool. He's like, oh, you should come do yoga. And he's like this long-haired punk rock guy. And I was like, you teach yoga? He's like, yeah, I've got my own studio. So he's like, if you come and sweep the floor here, I'll let you do the classes for free. So when I first started doing classes there, it was all for free. And then at some point he's like, I want to remodel my studio and do an expansion. You're from Oregon. You probably know how to do a hammer and a nail, you know, like (laughs) that's how kids are from Oregon. We know how to do things with our hands. We know about canoes and horses and things like that. (laughs) And, uh, 
So I helped him do this expansion. And then my work exchange for helping him do the remodel on his studio was to do the teacher training. So now I've been teaching yoga for 16 years here in LA and for 12 years right over here in Echo Park teaching donation classes. That's where I just am coming from is donation power yoga because I it's always been free for me essentially. Like it was given to me as a gift, even the ability to teach. Essentially, I didn't have to give anyone money for it. And so I wanted to kind of keep paying that gift forward. It's changed my life to be able to take care of myself. And even when I had a band in LA and I was like raging really hard and living that rock star kind of lifestyle, I always came back to yoga to kind of clean myself out, kind of squeeze the toxins out of my organs and push reset on my immune system. And that has helped keep me young and I think keep me happy too, because, you know, being hungover is very depressing, (laughs) you know? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, and trying to do yoga hungover is even you know that really teaches you you know how, how I have how a worth PhD it. in teaching yoga while hungover. <laughs> <I hope you know. laughs> no, but it really puts it makes you know when you're trying to do those first sun salutations or whatever, and you're hungover, it really says to you, okay. I know you had fun last night, but was it worth it? <laughs> because right. this is the price. You know? Right, yeah. You, you start to figure out that ratio really quick. It was like, okay, so is cocaine really worth it? If it's 50% regret, then hmm. <laughs> you know? The Mathematics of Hangovers, a new book by Pedro Schell. <laughs> um, Colton, why don't we interrupt a bit and let's hear some news from the outside world. We, oh, t- uh, we occasionally get updates from the outside world. Yeah, <laughs> that's key. You don't want to just sit here in your podcast cave. Uh oh. <laughs> oh, he got pulled. He got. He pulled himself out of the. Oh no. The system here. One you, moment. All right. Our engineer, podcast engineer here, just unplugged his headphones and doesn't know how to plug them back in. That's <laughs> my first day on the job. Yeah. <laughs> new. We got a new system set up here. Yeah. New. New system. New outputs and shit. So, all right. News. Washington is the first state to allow composting of human bodies. What do we think about that, Johnny? What? Yeah. So Composting like, where, does it say? So, like, you could be wood chips when you die, or you could become a tree or something. Oh, so, so it's like an opt-in it's, kind of thing, like organ donor, or you can... Like, yeah, I, I, I think that's what it's saying. So, you know, it's the first state to be able to do this. Because there have been serial killers in Washington doing that forever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, now they can do it legally. <laughs> Wait, that's so I get so it's an alternative to like cremation, uh, cremation, right, and, exactly. And, hmm. no, I mean that's that's pretty. It's a good idea. I mean, I'd like to, you know, I don't, I don't have an opinion on it until I see the science on, on what human compost does to produce. You know, if it's I, you probably you probably don't end up under produce, right? They probably just go put you in. I a, highly doubt it. Yeah, yeah. That would be the least bad thing in most produce. Is a human <laughs> body thing. Right? It's like the, the new the mo- Soylent Green or something. Yeah. We have. <laughs> oh, have you seen that? There's a drink called Soylent. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah. Uh, it's, how it's do a, they sell that? Does, there's it's nobody, a joke. They, no, they're they, just yeah. taking the piss. But it's, nobody, nobody. It has, it's Soylent, meaning it has soybeans in it. Right, right, right. So yeah. they're doing a play on words, but they're not actually. It's not uh, Logan's Run, you know. Or, or I, I can't. I, I mean, I've never even seen the movie with. Is that is that what it's called, Logan's Run? No, Soylent Green was was it, but and the Logan's Run thing is at a certain age, everybody has to go up and be. Uh, whatever they call it, transformed oh, or whatever, right, right. like oh, uh, but okay. they're actually just dying, you know. Right, right, they're right. like, oh, now is your time to progress or whatever, you know. Like, this drink, Soylent, uh, it is an actual drink. They're yeah, that's part of their marketing is they know it's like causing this controversy from the movie. It's yeah, soy milk only for a certain yeah. era. 
yeah, of yeah. people because every everybody young is just like oh soil yeah blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like that's a joke well but you're drinking someday they'll, they'll be horrified when they do some soylent videos on on uh, youtube and find this movie where everyone's eating these little green chips that are made out of other people <laughs> i have a i have a feeling this composting human they probably are using it in maybe large grasslands or like trees or something like that. I can't imagine them using it on produce, but no, I think what he's talking about, it's just specifically for burials. I don't think that they're like saying that like, Hey, the newest thing in compost. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sure that, well, like, well, this one, this says loved ones are allowed to keep the soil to spread just as they might spread the ashes of someone who has Hmm. been cremated or even use it to plant vegetables or a tree. Yeah. So, but how doesn't composting take, it's, it's going to take a while. What is the pre-grinding process that oh. they do? Oh, no. the, uh, I have to talk to Washington I would, Post about this. I mean, this. I, <laughs> it's prob- it is probably... <laughs> <laughs> it's like a person who doesn't understand American geography at all. <laughs> they have those compost tumblers, you know? So you just yeah. put the put your loved one in the tumbler and give it a good few rounds every New location day. There must, for filming there, Fargo, yeah, there too. must be some gruesome process to get to that point. because, But it is probably safe. Like, they've... A lot of people do composting toilets, which uses human waste remains that they, then you you seal it, and after about a year or two, then it's placed under trees or you can use in vegetables. I wouldn't use it on like vegetables or anything close to the ground just in case there's like like a tiny bit of contamination. But supposedly the bacteria and the heat that it gets to and the microorganisms break it down into indistinguishable. Like you're, you would never know that it's human remains or you would never know that it's uh, it's been human waste or whatever. It's just broken down into... Soil. Well, yeah, I mean, the bacteria. I mean, and the, the Earth has worked like that for every, yeah. billions of years. This is how organic material yeah. works, but it is, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to get it out of your brain when you it's think about it. It's a question of how long you wait, because, you know, you wait 10,000 years where everything is compost of some sort. Yeah, we'll get know? oil. oil yeah, yeah. Is These the, are like crude oil. Those, those right. are dinosaurs down in there. Or peat, for instance, in going back to the whiskeys you guys have in front of you here on the table. Like, Pete oh, it's is. a guy named Pete. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> There's a guy named Pete in there. No, it's, 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 it's vegetal matter that's composted over a long period of time. But there's also animals in there for sure. Yeah, yeah, there's like yeah. birds and bugs and fish. So you can't and truly be a vegan and drink whiskey. Is that what you're saying? I think, I think it's safe. I, think it's safe. <laughs> I don't think you can truly be a vegan and live. <laughs> right, right. What's the next uh, news item there, Colton? All right. So Denver has decriminalized magic mushrooms. Oh, yeah. Did yeah. we talk about this in the last one? or I No. Remember. We hmm. did not. That's uh, this is that's pretty huge. Prove it, man. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a big, big step. I think Oregon will be next. I was in oh, Amsterdam, sure. yeah, yeah, and yeah. they have decriminalized mushrooms. And let me tell you, that place is a hellhole. <laughs> Nothing works over there. No, it's yeah. fine. <laughs> I it's it is very interesting to see that America is kind of leading the charge. Amsterdam is an exception, but in terms of fully legalized drugs. America is kind of leading the yeah. charge in, in big nations, which is good to see because it's been a while since I think America's been progressive on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I am a little a- disappointed that it's Denver, honestly, <laughs> because uh, unless there's parts of Denver that we haven't seen, there's like a lot of aggro dudes there, you know, who just want to go and get high. And they. Well, it's probably maybe that's the best thing for them. It's the best thing for aggro dudes than to take a mushroom trip and. Yeah. And go out and sit in the woods and yeah, let the and trees to talk to you. Themselves. Maybe, maybe it's. Yeah. Well, I guess you're starting with an extreme population in, in some ways, you know, and see what it does to them. We can 
bring the science back to the rest of the country. Well, I've often thought you we say that about Denver. We have obviously only seen certain areas like the Lodo area where it is just like brawl city, people fighting always because of the bars. But it would be interesting to, th- I'm sure sociologists have looked into this. Like Denver would have been a real pioneer. To, like the people that moved out west and the history of that and the violence and the type of person that settled these western cities must have done something to the general population. Like, there must be some explanation as to why certain cities end up with a certain vibe or certain level of kind of violence to them, just historically speaking. Like, you know... Well, you were saying, like, Oregon, like, you were kind of joking about it, you said, but I'm from Oregon, I know how to use a hammer and a nail and horses and this. Like, that is a a stereotype, but it is true. Yeah, for sure. It's in the blood of... Western yeah, American more, people. More outdoorsy, you know, like that, that the challenges that nature brings changes your relationship with nature, you know. If yeah. you grew up in the city, you might never have that experience. I've, I've met kids here in, who grew up in L.A. and they've never, you know, rowed a canoe before, you know. They've never put an oar into the water and just tried to navigate across a lake or whatever. And it's like, wow. Or they've never gone fishing, you know. And yeah, it's, it's, it's important that... that relationship with nature and that goes back to the yoga thing too i think it it helps realign you to your place within nature your place within yourself your relationship with the world around you you know it's all that mindfulness kind of Mm -hmm. constant constant reconnection to that you know yeah i think that just the it's it's almost hard to avoid it nowadays because you're so if you do accidentally find yourself in nature, you know, out of the city, away from your phone, away from your habits that have accumulated over the last several years of technology, um, you're shocked out of that state. And you have to, you know, if you're outside at night and you look up and you think, holy shit, where am I in relation to these stars? You know, what am I in relation to these stars? It's, uh, It's such a novelty experience now for most people. Even even for me, like if I go to nature, it feels like a novelty experience, and that's what's weird about this yeah. the new lifestyle. Well, particularly you know? stars in L.A. Like that's even in, when we were in Phoenix before. Stars this, are on the ground here. <laughs> yeah, stars <laughs> are on the boulevard, but you do, you see zero stars here most mm-hmm. days because so of the much light pollution. and the everything. It, what you what forget you, your place in the world. You can very mm-hmm. feel very self important when things are like oh, it's only as far as the beach, and then you think about something's a billion light years away. Like it changes dramatically your ego. What do you attribute the, the differences in spirits in relation to like different states of mind or different qualities of, uh, states that you experience, you know, like whiskey and wine and vodka, they all have completely different intoxications. Even if you're not completely drunk on them, if you, you know, just a sip or two, they, they seem like they have, they induce different states oh absolutely and i think if you go to if you were to like come down to one of my go through a week in my work life like come to whiskey society on monday and then rum society on tuesday and then the mezcal collective on wednesday you'll see what the crowds are very different for each of those events you know the whiskey society a lot of folks are like there's something with that really mature highly kind of sophisticated flavor profiles that come from whiskey that 
cause people to be a little reflective, you know, like kind of as the, the whiskey mm-hmm. society can be a little more studious, more people taking notes. You go over to the rum society and it's a, it's a really, it's a good time spirit. Like rum is just like people like, you Sailors. know, it's, it's made in the islands. And yeah. so there's like, there's this kind of, it's more of a laid back approach to it. We go into the rum society and like, there are people like lighting up their cigars on the patio before we even start the tasting. You know, that wouldn't happen. The whiskey society people be like, put that out. I'm trying to smell my whiskey. You know, but <laughs> in the rum world, they're like, screw, we're having a good time. They just want to like, enjoy like those those spirits that take them back to where they're from it's like these we we attract these audiences there that are like island specific like last night we were doing um mount gay from barbados and we had some folks from barbados in the house you know Mm. we do cachaca like the brazilian crew will definitely come out and show up for their spirit because it reminds them of where they come from and then you know mezcal which is what i'm going to be doing tonight that to me like that's that's the medicine of a people, you know? You talk about these different mezcals from southern Oaxaca, southern Mexico, you know? That's like, that is so much a, a part of the culture of the people there. It's something that they've used to heal themselves with, and it and it's, it's so kind of mysterious and magical. You know, you talk about whiskey, that's like made from grass, and the character's coming from all this time in a barrel. Mezcal's kind of the complete opposite the character is coming from this plant that no one took care of often these wild silvestre uh, agaves are out in these arid mountains of southern mexico on their own no one's watering them and they're surviving for 20 years before they get harvested and that's all the personality of that spirit's coming from this plant that survived you Mm -hmm. know like a, a a distant relative of a water lilies from the asparagus family you know it's like figured out how to survive in these completely hardcore is that what agave is it's a it's a is it in the same family as a water lily it recently has been judged to be a different subgenus um for a long time that they said it was from water lily but now i think a lot of scientists agree that it's more closely related to asparagus but those are still still water plants so it was at a time when that part of mexico was would be under the ocean you know millions of years ago somehow this plant uh evolved to be able to survive from something that lived in water to something that lived on a high mountain in nonstop arid sunlight. Um, So that's where your characters come from. And that's pretty magical that this plant has evolved to the point where, you know, after 20 years of growth, you can harvest it and get this beautiful spirit out of it. So there's so much difference to that. And especially in the mezcal world, I really think that um, to tie back to that idea that uh, it, ties you to the mysteries of the earth there's kind of nothing more uh, nothing has more terroir to it than mezcal in a way because it's got so much of that minerality from that plant this little succulent plant that's just somehow surviving in the desert all by itself soaking up water from who knows where you know they say that the tobala agave um is has an enzyme in its roots that allows it to actually dissolve through granite to get at liquid like wow. what kind of evolution is going on there that's millions of years to get to that point you know yeah it's kind of woo but <clears throat> i've had this feeling and this thought lately that there's a lot of these plants there's some like symbiotic or there's a reciprocal um nature of them that there's some like they're intertwined humans and certain plants are intertwined mm-hmm. because over the millions of years of evolution these plants develop certain they crystallize certain um 
enzymes that we break down, we have receptors for that give us and put us into certain states. And it's almost like it's not accidental. Like there's there's oh, some, yeah. you know, taking, drinking mezcal or smoking weed or taking a psychedelic or drinking whiskey, they give you certain states and it's not just purely accidental. It's like we share with these plants some evolutionary history or some in, a, in an emotional level or in some emotional level. And I'm sure, there, sure. if there are any scientists... Which I don't well, you could say that about yeast itself because fermentation, wine or beer, that just comes, you take any grain or anything with some kind of grape or fruit or anything that's got sugar in it will ferment with a little bit of water into something that will start to create alcohol. That's yeast. And so we could say that we've domesticated yeast strains, you know, like the yeast strain for the, your favorite lager, that doesn't exist in nature anymore. Like that would have evolved millions mm. of years ago into something else, but we've procured that one kind of yeast to be able to make that one kind of beer because we like that taste. So we've domesticated that yeast strain, but it could also be argued that that microorganism, that single cell fungi, domesticated us mm -hmm. yeah. for so its like own survival. It, it started making flavors well, that we would get into so that we would caretake it and make sure that he would always be Especially around. Especially when it comes to fungus. That like I don't know if there's a guy, Paul Stamets, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a I think he's from Oregon actually. He's a mycologist. My, my my I think that's how you say it, mycologist. Anyway, he's an absolute expert on mushrooms and fungus and all sorts of mushrooms. And sounds like Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> and just listening to him speak and, and you know, reading about the bizarre nature of certain funguses and how they survive. Like mm -hmm. they will attack uh, another organism, complete like ants, to make them crawl up a tree, um, and then their heads explode, and the spores spread all over the uh, the forest. And they control ants, like they become, they make these ants little robots. Mm -hmm. And so it's for me, it's you know whether it's scientifically proven or not that that idea that you brought up, like the yeast domesticated us, it doesn't sound insane or crazy at all. It's like a, it's just another way of looking at it. You know, well, mm -hmm. yeah, he uh, he was um, on the Joe Rogan podcast. It was a long podcast fascinating stuff and you know he he his understand scientific understanding of mushrooms is extremely deep but he's also willing to make some leaps for his own theorizing and own you know um i guess ma making mental leaps as to the the reasoning behind some of these things and so he it does sound a little fantastical but it's fucking interesting i mean he the fact that that mushrooms and and um fungi and these these base aspects of our organic life have been around forever essentially mm -hmm. they've been around way longer than plants and, and even uh, animals and and humans obviously you know you have to question okay if they survive this long and they seem to mold the environment to their needs everywhere they go you know it does make you question who's who's the king of the earth you know? yeah, <laughs> that's right well, yeah, that, that I just watched last night, actually, that part of that new Netflix, Planet Earth thing, when they show the ant that gets infected by cordyceps mushroom. Hmm. It's really terrifying alien movie if you watch it in that way. Mm -hmm. And you imagine, like, what is going on in our gut and our brains to make us act in certain ways sure, that we'll we're not even aware of. We, what, what if we were hunter-gatherers and we were following the mastodons hundreds of thousands of years ago? Uh, and... Uh, those mastodons were shitting and they had some strange mushrooms coming up out of their shit and in our tracking of the mastodons we were like oh that looks like food 
And that could be what first grokked us to the whole idea of religion or like, you know, these mm. cavemen getting super high on mushrooms, looking up at the sky and being like, oh, this finally all makes sense, you know? Like, <laughs> what is it? It's, uh, is that it's Terrence, Terrence McKenna, McKenna the yeah. Stone yeah. Ape yeah. Theory? Yeah, sure, sure. I, that one, had, uh, of all the, quote, crazy theories, that one sounds like a good place to start an investigation to see... Well, you that, know, that's more... I think he was he was there's still the gap as to why the brain grew so rapidly in size, right? I think that's still there's no accepted theory that people just cooking food, um, eating more protein, or is it they they can't figure out exactly what alien interbreeding? Yeah, alien in, <laughs> intervention. Well, it's been studied that um, you know the ferment, fermented beverages are what took us from being kind of hunter-gatherers to actually settling down and stop being nomadic mm-hmm. so that we could harvest a crop that we could then ferment into something that would give us alcohol. Well, that takes time mm-hmm. and cultivation, and you can't just do that as you're chasing the mastodon across the plains of Africa. You know, you yeah. had to settle down in one place to make that happen. I've heard that theory that that, that alcohol was an impetus one of the major impetuses for agriculture. For agriculture. Well, like that, the, yeah. the, the tribe in Mexico, the Tanahumara, they're like a running tribe. They make a very, very low alcohol content fermentation of corn that allows them to get like enormous amounts of their calories comes from basically corn beer. Yeah. And because they grow so much corn, you know, you have to store it somehow. Eventually it goes off, but fermenting it, you know, makes it last longer and they, they get huge calories of this and then they'll drink like, shit loads of it and then go run and then they, they run hundreds <laughs> yeah. of miles right and then they'll run yeah. hundreds of miles and there's a tribe in South America that I think it's 80% of it's calories from honey and it makes you wonder like oh I, I need to eat this or I can't eat that it's like well, there's people who eat honey and they're doing just fine yeah <laughs> we're so picky well the Tibetans who eat pretty much they eat yak, yak butter, butter yeah they're like it's I mean I think there's part of that where people have been in a certain area for, for long enough that adaptation has been able to occur over generations it's not like you could just tomorrow go start eating honey your body would probably revolt at least temporarily (laughs) but uh it is become a bear with no pants (laughs) or you just get too sweet for words (laughs) it's pretty interesting that how different people on this planet seem to get a similar existence out of a very different diet or a different lifestyle you know and it works it works for them like so this that's why i went you know the idea of diets and stuff like that i can't separate that from from the fact that it, it, there's not going to be one diet that works for everybody you know people have different needs they have different genes and uh it has different to be confusions yeah we're all serving our fungal o- overlords <laughs> <laughs> has your it job taken true. you uh traveling much do you travel now oh, yeah. to a lot of distilleries and, oh, and places around really, the world really lucky yeah from that standpoint uh I've gotten to go to Ireland and Scotland. Um, uh, I'm a member of the Actors Gang Theater Company, which is a theater company here in LA. So I've gotten a tour with that theater company. But the, the booze industry has taken me to Kentucky numerous times, um, Scotland and, and Ireland. And uh, it's it's been really, really wonderful. And, and to be able to turn other people on using these societies, like to give them a deeper understanding of the spirits that they love, I think that that provides them a sense of history and a sense of place. And I'm happy to be able to explore that and be able to share it with folks because I think that it makes, again, it gives you something that you can deepen your own existence with, that, that sense of history in the bottles of spirit that you love. It ties you back to yourself. It's like yoga, like a, a reunion of sorts. It reminds you of where you come from and what mm-hmm. you're made of. 
What What were some of your favorite places like in Scotland and Ireland? Did you go to major distillers there? Or Dufftown, you- yeah. Dufftown is kind of the heart of the Speyside region. I haven't gotten to travel to Isla yet. So BM Suntory, if you're out there listening, please. <laughs> put me on an airplane um i've gotten to go to japan though last year i got to go to japan which was an amazing amazing experience i went with johnny the scott out there i got to visit the both the yamazaki and the hakshu distilleries which are amazing like the the japanese approach to whiskey making and the just the japanese japanese lifestyle in terms of their relationship with nature being on this tiny island country with such a high population and the way that they've figured out how to balance that and make that work without, you know, decimating all their resources. It's really quite a, a, something that's remarkable that we could learn from here in America for sure. Um, but yeah, the Hakshu distillery is located in the high mountains outside of Tokyo up in this like cedar forest with Buddhist monasteries all around and like this beautiful water source coming out of this high mountain spring. And then, uh, you know, Going to Scotland, Dufftown, which is where really close to like Glenfiddich and Glenfarclas, it's Craig Allakies right there. It's like there's like 12 distilleries all clustered around this town. It's like whiskey heaven if you're into Speyside whiskeys, you know, it's incredible. And you, the people there are so great, you know. Um, it, it's, it's great to be able to travel and have that kind of spirit focus because whenever you get through your long day of traveling, you've gotten to taste some things you can really sit back and enjoy and there's you can't put you can't underestimate the importance of that you know after these great wars how did we figure it out like millions of people died in these terrible tragic horrible things that we humans do to one another through war and how do we smooth it all out we sit down at a table with some cigars and some whiskey and we sign a piece of paper and swear we're never going to do it again (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I never actually thought about that, how important... I mean, we understand in a personal relation, like, it's it's the social lubricant, but that goes way up the chain to mm-hmm. the fact that, yeah, Winston Churchill probably sat down... Ardbeg's oily the, enough, you could probably use it yeah, as a Yeah, the Treaty of Malta, yeah. yeah. that's they, they drank whiskey and they smoked cigars, and they created a treaty that would end the wars. Huh. Yeah. Until the next one. <laughs> I, Unfortunately, there there is a special balance with cigars and whiskey. I feel like they pull in opposite directions, and you just reach this perfect balance with them. You know, the cigars are kind of they make you cerebral, and they, they, I feel like they speed up thought. And whiskey just kind of pulls back, pulls the reins in. You know, and you can achieve a very a good homeostasis with the, those two things. <laughs> yeah, well, whiskey kind of opens your mind, and then the tobacco kind of like focuses it. You know? Yeah, definitely, there's focus from tobacco for sure. Yeah. And then I, and then you have know. you ever tried Lafroy 18 on weed? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't like mixing weed. <laughs> I mean, this has been really interesting for me. I, I, I think it's it's uh, you know when when Johnny reached out to you to come doing this podcast, uh, you can kind of sense right away in the first five minutes that we got a lot to talk about. I feel like we could probably even do another one of these, you know, and just well, cover a lot more ground. Um, but do you want to talk about any? So you, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you have events here? Yeah, here in um, downtown Los Angeles. Whiskey Society on Mondays at Seven Grand. Rum Society at Kanye Tuesday nights. And uh, Wednesday nights tonight at the Mezcal Collective will be at Las Perlas down on 6th of Maine. Cool. And then also your podcast, uh, 
is you said twice weekly. Or yeah, we post. We do two guests. postings. Uh, we only started in October. We've got over sixty episodes up, and I like to think of it as like an educational resource for people in the bar industry. But really, it's for everyone, anyone who wants to learn more about the spirits that they love. Like, why do things taste the way they do? I mean, this is a free educational forum and you get to, again, hear what other people are saying. You could do a little tasting party at your house, pick up the marks that are in whatever podcast you're interested in listening to, listen to the podcast, do the tasting with us, and then listen to the feedback that the audience is giving live where they have those flavor notes and, and, mm. and food ideas or colors or sensations or memories yeah. mm. that could trigger stuff within yourself as well. I also noticed you have your, uh, what is your YouTube handle? Because you, you're posting these, some of these podcasts up there, but also oh, yeah. just little short educational videos about like what a pot still is versus... Sure, yeah. All the we do Terminology stuff. Thursdays. Yeah. Um, but uh, we're on Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC, so it's Spirit Guide Society. Okay. But then on YouTube is the Spirit Guide Society podcast. Okay. So we've got a YouTube channel. We're doing uh, videos all the time and uh, doing two posts a week, Spirit Guide Society podcast. So check us out. Yeah, we'll um, put links to that on all our websites. And then if you're in the LA area, go to any of these two on three places to have a drink and maybe get involved in the society. Uh, One quick question before we go is Ardbeg a pot still? Yes, yeah, they're okay. using pasta. Okay, is that why it's oily? Well, definitely, definitely that'll contribute to the different sizes of most single malt scotch is going to be double distilled in a pot still. Okay. If you're drinking a, a blended scotch, most of the time they're going to have column distillate in there as well. Mm -hmm. So they're using uh, a grain whiskey to blend with the pot still whiskey. The pot still whiskey is going to kind of be the heavier flavored aspects of that flavor profile in whatever Chivas or Johnny Walker that blended is going to definitely have some um, column distillate in it right. usually. Second question: Is anybody working on speeding up the aging process? Oh yeah, I mean, right I would here assume in downtown that. LA, okay. there's like Lost Spirits Distillery. Yeah. This guy Brian Davis down there, he is a mad scientist. He's making rum and whiskey, and what he does is he puts it in this vacuum glass vacuum tube, and then zaps it with like ultraviolet lights, and he hmm. puts the wood at, that's been roasted at different levels into this vacuum tube and then zaps the distillate with the wood inside of this vacuum tube and tries to accelerate the aging mm -hmm. experience. And, I mean, you can use a gastrospectrochromograph to look at the kind of digital imprint of the flavor profile, the actual chemical breakdowns of the different flavor isolates that are within the uh, whatever spirit you're making. Mm -hmm. And he said, supposedly, he, that he's been able to replicate the flavor of a 23-year-old rum in five days. Wow. So <laughs> the gastrospectrochromograph, is that a spectrochromograph? It's a light measuring device that's tuned for, for things that we taste exactly, and eat. things that we eat and, and drink. So... He's the only person in LA, in LA trying to speed up the aging process. No, no, no. <laughs> There's, you know, well, Jim Beam did that. Um, that Jim Beam Black. You know what they've done there is that they've they've got this big uh, palette essentially. That's you know the paint sh the paint shaker that you see at Home Depot when you yeah. when you mix yeah. your own color and they've got the thing that shakes the can of paint for you. Yeah. Essentially, they take old whiskey barrels uh, and put water into the old whiskey barrels, shake it up, agitate it, and that water pulls more whiskey out of the wood, and they use that as the proofing water for their normal Jim Beam to make a new flavor huh. expression. <laughs> so there's all kinds of different ways to add age. You know, like 
Tennessee whiskey. They they dump that whiskey through uh, maplewood charcoal filtration before it goes in the barrel. Now you could say that that filter is taking flavor out. Maybe cogeners that might people might be off putting some people, like they taste too young or too corny or whatever. Or it could be adding a sense of age. All that extra charred oak before it goes in the barrel could be adding mm. a sense of age before it goes mm. in. Let's end on a quote from the jerk where he's at dinner and they get a bottle of wine and he says, enough of this old wine. Bring me some noose. <laughs> Something <laughs> Something fresh. That's right. Oh, I do actually uh, one more tack on. Uh, have you seen a movie called Local Hero? No. Okay. It's, uh, it's a movie from... I've heard the, about it. Yeah. I think it's from the late 80s. Um, it's about this Texas oil man and they want to go, their company wants to buy a, a part, you know, it's part of Scotland and uh, there's resistance in this little town. They have to buy up the whole town. Anyway, it's, it's, it's actually a really, really good movie. It's scored by Mark Knopfler. But there's oh, yeah. a scene where the Texas, the Scottish guy gives the Texas guy some 42-year-old whiskey. And then they have this big party, and at the end of the night, he comes back, and he says, hey, hey, how about some more of that 42-year-old whiskey? He says, oh, no, mate, we finished it. He says, okay, I'll take four eight-year-old whiskeys and one 10-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how it works. <laughs> All right. Nice. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I'm hey, sure we'll do so this much again. For having me. Yeah. And if not, we'll see you down at one of the various bars drinking. Come to Mezcal Collector tonight, man. Get into the magical Mezcal world. Cool. All right, man. Thanks a lot. And Thank you guys. Uh, we'll put up links to check out everything that Pedro is doing. We'll see you guys next week. If you would like to support this podcast, head to Kong. No. Don't head to congos.com. Head to patreon.com slash congos. And for $2 a month, you can get the ad-free version. That's it. We'll see you guys next week. Um, that's, not, that's not it. Next week, we're going to be putting out a six-track EP coming out on June 4th that will be exclusive for the week before for podcast listeners. So make sure you tune in next week to hear those six songs before anyone else does. See you guys next week. Bye.